Are we there? Okay. Excellent. Can we please turn to Luke chapter 2? Now for our reading this morning, we are going to read about Jesus as a baby being presented to God in the temple. And our sermon that will come afterwards will focus on Anna. At the temple, Mary and Joseph encounter two people there. They encounter Simeon and Anna. And Simeon and Anna have some quite incredible things to say about their child. And this account takes place not long after Jesus' birth. In fact, you know, I never thought about it before preparing this morning's sermon, but this account of Jesus being presented into the temple is actually part of the Christmas story because it, it, it takes place not very long after Jesus is born and it even um, takes place long before the wise men turn up in town. Now, I didn't know this, mainly because I haven't seen any Christmas cards with Simeon and Anna on them, so I never really sort of put those one and one together. Now, before we dive into Luke 2, there's some helpful background for us to consider. As Jewish parents, there were certain requirements that Joseph and Mary needed to undertake. Firstly, as a male child, Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day after his birth and this was to fulfil a part of the requirement of the law. Then they needed to go to the temple and this happened about a month later and they went there to conduct two different ceremonies which also would fulfil requirements of Moses' law. First of all there was the purification offering for Mary after she had given birth. The parents were to bring a lamb as as the offering. But as in Mary's and Joseph's case, if they couldn't afford a lamb, then they had the option to offer two birds, either two turtle doves or two young pigeons. And this sort of talks to us about the sort of home that Jesus was born into. He wasn't born into a noble home that was rich. He was born into a humble home that had limited means. Now, also being Mary's first child, Jesus was to be dedicated as the firstborn to the Lord. This was also part of the law of Moses. So they dedicated him to the Lord and part of this dedication would have been that Mary and Joseph would have had to redeem Jesus by making an offering. And in doing this, they were sort of like, bind back Jesus from the Lord. The requirement here is that they would have paid five shekels to redeem him. And the irony here is that Jesus would later himself become the great redeemer. He was destined to be the redemption of Israel and to be the redemption of the whole world. And he would not redeem us with gold or with money but with his precious blood. So what we see going on here this morning is that Mary and Joseph were being faithful to God and to the requirements of the law. Jesus would have been just over a month old when all three of them would have packed up and gone on this road trip 
and they were off to the temple in Jerusalem and they encounter two people who recognise who Jesus actually is, Simeon and Anna. And these two people are the two witnesses who recognise the long-awaited Messiah. He is the Christ, he is the Anointed One of God. Now Simeon and Anna, they were waiting for God's Messiah. In fact, probably most of Israel was waiting for the Messiah to appear. And they didn't just see Jesus as a bonny baby boy. No, the Holy Spirit was upon them. Simeon goes on to proclaim that Jesus is God's salvation. He is the light that reveals God to the nations and he is the glory of Israel. Anna also recognises this child as the Messiah and she does two things. She praises God and then she talks to people about how this child is their salvation. They are two witnesses of Christ. Now as we read through this text this morning, I have a couple of questions for you to keep in the back of your minds. Why did God choose these two people? What was it about them that they were honoured to serve God in this special way? So we're going to read from... uh, Luke chapter 2 and we're going to read from verse 21 through to 40. Eight days later, when the baby was circumcised, he was named Jesus, the name given him by the angel even before he was conceived. Then it was time for their purification offering as required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The law of the Lord says, If a woman's first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. So they offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. At that time there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day the Spirit led him to the temple So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord, as the law required, Simeon was there. And he took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace, as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people Israel. Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall, but he will be a joy to many others. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed 
and a sword will pierce your very soul. Anna, a prophet, was also there in the temple. She was the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher, and she was very old. Her husband died when they had been married only seven years. Then she lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshipping God with fasting and prayer. She came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God. She talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. When Jesus' parents had fulfilled all the requirements of the law of the Lord, they returned home to Nazareth in Galilee. There the child grew up healthy and strong. He was filled with wisdom and God's favour was on him. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you this morning for your word and Lord, we just pray as we come and look at your word this morning. Lord, we pray that your spirit is amongst us and that, Lord, that you will quicken things to our hearts and to our minds. Lord, we pray that we're open to hear what you have to say and, Lord, we pray that we are open to your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, first of all, let's look at Anna's name. And um, her name in Hebrew is actually a variation of the name Hannah. And both names mean grace. Now, you'll remember Hannah of the Bible as the mother of Samuel. And there's actually a few parallels that we can briefly explore between Hannah and Anna. In the story of Hannah, she was also at the temple. She wasn't at this temple in Jerusalem, but she was at the temple that was in Shiloh. This was centuries earlier, and she went to the temple and she poured out her heart before God. And as you'll remember, Hannah couldn't bear children, but she came before God in her faith and in her anguish, and she cried out to God. And God heard her cry. She was then able to leave the temple in peace. And then later she gave birth to her firstborn son, Samuel. God had answered her prayer. Later Hannah returned again to the temple and she made the offerings that were required and dedicated Samuel to the Lord. So very much similar to to what Mary and Joseph did with Jesus. But in Hannah's case, um, it, it, was, it went a little bit further because she left Samuel in the care of the priests and they brought him up. So she, she really did dedicate her son to the Lord. And as you may recall, there is that link between Hannah's answered prayer and Jesus. Samuel, her son, later became the judge of Israel and it was him who anointed David as king. And of course David was the ancestor of Jesus. It was through his line that Israel and the world would see the salvation to come. And here we are in today's account. And Anna was present at the temple when Jesus was being dedicated to the Lord. And she is one of the two witnesses who recognise that this child 
is that long-awaited saviour. Now there's a number of similarities between the two women that we can draw. Both are singled out in scripture for their practice of prayer and fasting. Both of them felt at home in the temple. We see that Hannah felt at home in the temple because she could come to the temple and she could open up her heart and, and just pray earnestly before the Lord. And of course Anna just basically lived in the temple. She was there quite often. And we should remember that the temple represents the presence of God among his people. And that's where these ladies felt at home. They felt at home amongst the presence of God. And we also should naturally feel at home in the presence of the Lord. And we should be seeking his presence. Also, both of these ladies are recognised as prophetesses. Hannah, while not being accredited as a prophet in the Bible text, is often referred to such because of her prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2, particularly verse 10, which is prophetic in nature because she refers to Christ through the royal line of David. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. As I said a few moments ago, Hannah's son would become the judge that anointed David as the king of Israel and it's King David's descendant who was the promised Messiah. Now the meaning of the names Anna and Hannah is grace and that's appropriate for both of these women. They were both women of grace. Anna was a godly woman both in practice and no doubt she was also a godly woman in character. She was a personification of what her name meant. Grace. And not only that, but she is also a witness to the grace of God. This child is the salvation that the world had been waiting for. This child is the grace of God. Now, the first thing that we see about Anna is that she is a prophet. Now the way I read this is that she was recognised as a prophet before these events in the temple took place. A prophet or a prophetess is a person who is recognised for being able to speak the word of God. So Anna was not just known for her prayer and fasting, she was also known as a speaker of God's word. Now when we look in the Bible, we find that Anna is in good company. She isn't the only woman who is recognised as a prophet. I've already mentioned Hannah, and there are a number of other examples. Some of these you'll, you'll, you'll recognise, so quite um, household sort of names, and others there you might not have been aware of. The first woman who is recognised as a prophet in the Bible is Miriam, and as we know, Miriam was the sister of Moses and Aaron. And there in Exodus chapter 15 verse 20 she's named as a prophet. Deborah was also a prophet. And um, the interesting thing about Deborah was not only was she a prophet but she was also a judge of Israel. So she was the leader of Israel as well. 
Um, I've got a couple of pictures up there. Those are supposed to represent Miriam and and Deborah. Um, I was trying to find a because Deborah's quite an interesting character. I was trying to find one of her um, going into battle on a horse and all that sort of thing, but I couldn't quite find one. So um, now a name you might not recognise so much is Holder, and um, Holder's account is quite good in that it gives us details of of a prophecy that she brought. And um, if you were to read 2 Chronicles 34, we see there that there's an instance where the high priest consulted her on behalf of the king of Judah. She was known as a prophet. They had a bit of an issue, so they went to her to seek God's word. And she brings forward the word of God for that situation. So that's quite an interesting read. That's 2 Chronicles 34. The next lady that's mentioned in the, in, in the Bible, I've put a question mark next to it. Uh, her name is Noadiah, and I'm not sure whether she was actually a, a prophet of the Lord or whether she was a false prophet, because the only mention that we have is in Nehemiah uh, chapter 6, verse 14, where Nehemiah talks about how Noadiah had tried to intimidate her, um, intimidate him, sorry. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure what the reference there. She is named as a prophet though. Uh, then there's Isaiah's wife. Isaiah refers to his wife as the prophetess. And finally there's, other than Anna, there is um, mention in the New Testament of the four daughters of Philip the Evangelist. And we don't know much about them other than they had the gift of prophecy. So we see that certain women were recognised as prophets throughout scripture. Anna wasn't the only female prophet. Unfortunately, in Anna's case, before this day in the temple when she laid eyes on Jesus, we don't have any information about how or to what degree she was a prophet. At the very least, she spoke and taught the word of God to others. But what we do see here is that her prophetic gift comes into action from this moment forward. God reveals his Messiah to her and she goes on to speak about what God has revealed to her. She explains to others what God has shown her. This Jesus is the one who will save us. Now, the next thing that we see is that Anna is the daughter of Phanuel and of the tribe of Asher. Um, Interesting, uh, we don't know much about Phanuel, but his name means face of God. So I wonder again if, if, if this name that is given to him speaks about his character as well. We, 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 don't, we don't know, but that's what his name means. What I did find some significance in, though, was her heritage. We find that for her to be of the tribe of Asher and to be living in Jerusalem in the first century, this signifies that she has the heritage of being part of God's faithful remnant. It's not often that we hear about the tribe of Asher and it's also not very often we hear much about Asher himself. Asher was one of the sons of Jacob and he was in fact Jacob's eighth son. His mother's name was Zilpah and she was Leah's maid. Other than that, we don't hear much about him. But his descendants were to become one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And when we look into Israel's history, 
we see that under the first three kings of Israel, that is King David, or it was King Saul first actually, King Saul, King David and King Solomon, we had a united kingdom of all 12 tribes. However, after the death of King Solomon, the kingdom was split. Ten tribes broke away and they became the northern kingdom of Israel. Only two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, remained loyal to the line of King David. So Asher made up part of Israel, which was that northern kingdom. And the thing about that northern kingdom, Israel, was that it became known as the apostate northern kingdom. You see, throughout its history, this kingdom did not have a single king who was righteous in the eyes of God. Her kings and the nation as a whole were continuously and consistently unfaithful to God. And then finally, in 722 BC, Assyria conquered Israel and exiled all of its people from the land. And very few of these people ever returned from this exile. So I'm not sure if you can see that map too well. Um, I was sitting down the back yesterday checking it out and without these I couldn't see much on it. Um, But what we see there is that there is the northern kingdom of, of Israel and they were exiled by Assyria up into that part. But then later on, Judah had the same issue and um, they were unfaithful to God as well. So they were invaded by the Babylonians and they were exiled to Babylonia. But the difference with these guys is that 70 years later, the remnant returned to the land and and came back to Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple. Um, But these people up here, not many of them returned from their exile at all. And of course, amongst that was the tribe of Asher. So, what this means, this means one of two things that must have happened to Anna's ancestors. Either they immigrated south to Judah, possibly to be closer to the temple, possibly to get away from the Assyrians, but they must have either immigrated south to be part of Judah before the Assyrians invaded and exiled everybody, or they were among the small and scattered group of exiles who did manage to return home from the Assyrian exile. Either way, they were part of the remnant of Israel. And we see throughout Scripture that when the people of God were unfaithful to him, he never wiped them out completely. He never took them away completely. There was always a faithful remnant. He always kept a faithful remnant of his people. So Anna had this heritage of being part of the faithful remnant of God's people. And that in itself lines up with Anna's situation in the temple. She was a faithful lady. And in her situation, she was like the faithful remnant in the temple itself. As most of you probably know, the first century temple and the priesthood were known to be corrupt and they were known for being miles away from the will of God. Jesus addresses this issue himself later on in his own ministry. But here amongst all this corruption, amongst the money changers and amongst the godlessness 
was this faithful woman of God. Now moving on, we, we come to the next thing that's presented to us about Anna. And this is probably my favourite part of the description of Anna. The next thing we learn is that Anna was very old. I really like the way that some versions put it. They describe her as being of a great age. And you can just imagine Anna bumping into Luke in heaven one day and she'd probably say something like, Thanks Luke. You know, the one thing that most people remember about me is that I was an old lady in the temple. Now, come on, let's, let's admit it. If you're like me, when you found out what today's sermon was all about, you probably thought, oh right, that's that old lady in the temple. And there's nothing wrong with being an old lady. I mean, it could be worse. It could be a grumpy old man. And in fact, that's my plans for retirement. I am planning to be a grumpy old man when I retire. And Lisa will probably tell you that the way I've been behaving lately, I must be aiming for an early retirement. (laughs) But one of the things that I love about this scripture is that it demonstrates once again that any of us and all of us can serve God, no matter who we are. I mean, let's check it out. Anna was 84 years old, so she was getting on a little bit. She was also a widow, and that that was quite a major thing in those days. They were generally poor and they had low levels of support. And as we have read here, she wasn't a recent widow. Her husband hasn't just recently died because of old age. No, she lost her husband at a very young age and she never remarried. It says that she was only married for seven years. So if you take into consideration the culture that Anna lived in, she was probably widowed in her early 20s and was therefore a widow for close to 60 years. So she had pretty much been single for most of her life. And this is the person that God chose to do this particular job. God chose an older lady who had spent most of her life as a widow to serve him in this very special way. Not only was she chosen for this special moment, this elderly widow had already been serving God faithfully for years. She was a prophet and she never left the temple. Day and night she was worshipping God and she was fasting and she was praying. I asked the question this morning, what does a servant of God look like? Do we have preconceived ideas about who can serve God? Do we think because of who we are or because of our situation we are disqualified from serving God? The point here is that all of us can serve God no matter our age, our marital status, our gender, our financial situation, our cultural inheritance, our shape, our size. No one is exempt because of any of these things. Now, of course, this example of Anna can be encouraging for our older ladies. And we do have some older ladies here. We seem to have a bit of a collection of them. 
But this example points out to all of us that this portion of the church is not just ornamental or should it be just put on the shelf. Sometimes we can unknowingly have this sort of attitude towards certain demographics of the church. For example, we sometimes refer to our children and our youth as the church of tomorrow. And this statement is true. And I think we, we, we say this statement because it encourages us to teach and train our young ones who will go on to be the leaders and be the nuts and bolts of tomorrow's church. But they are also the church of today. Many of our children and youth are being used by God now and they make up part of our church. Our older folk are often referred to as being the pillars of yesterday's church and they have left us, left us a legacy and great examples for the rest of us to follow. And again, that is true. But there are many older people in our church and in this church here who are still ministering to God and to others. They do still have gas left in the tank. They're not making a big deal of it, but they are running small groups. They are reaching out to our community. They are fellowshipping with others. They are praying and they are fasting and they are doing many things for God. So we have two points of encouragement here. First of all, it doesn't matter who you are, God can use you and you can serve him. And secondly, we should be encouraging and enabling everyone in our church, not just to grow in Christ, but to serve him. Now there's um, a couple of really good scriptures here that really cement in place what we're talking about here. The first one is 1 Samuel 16. And uh, you may recall the scripture, this is uh, when Samuel had been told by God that one of the sons of Jesse is to be anointed as king. As we know, later on it was to be uh, his youngest son David. But initially, I think Samuel saw, I think it was the oldest son, and when he looked at him he thought, surely this guy is the guy that God's talking about. He has that nature about him. But this is what the Lord said. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And that, I believe, is why Anna, the elderly widow, was chosen to be a witness of the Messiah instead of the chief priest who should have been more qualified for the job. God looked at the heart of the person. The next scripture is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 27. It's, it's, it's fairly long, so I'll read it fairly quickly, but it's, it's a very descriptive um, uh, piece of scripture, so um, it's very easy to, to follow through. And it just really, again, cements what we've just been talking about. One body, but many parts. There is one body, but it has many parts. But all its many parts make up one body. It is the same with Christ. 
we are all baptised by one Holy Spirit and so we are formed into one body. It didn't matter whether we were Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free people. We were all given the same spirit to drink. So the body is not made up of just one part. It has many parts. Suppose the foot says, I'm not a hand, so I don't belong to the body. By saying this, it cannot stop being part of the body. And suppose the ear says, I am not an eye, so I don't belong to the body. By saying this, it cannot stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, how could it hear? If the whole body were an ear, how could it smell? God placed each part in the body just as he wanted it to be. If all the parts were the same, how could there be a body? As it is, there are many parts, but there is only one body. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, it's just the opposite. The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are the ones we can't do without. The parts that we think are less important we treat with special honour. The private parts aren't shown, but they are treated with special care. The parts that can be shown don't need special care, but God has put together all the parts of the body and he has given more honour to the parts that didn't have any. In that way, the parts of the body will not take sides. All of them will take care of one another. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part shares in its joy. You are the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of it. Well, it's true, isn't it? Um, As I mentioned before, quite often when we think about the story of Anna, we tend to recall that she was an old lady at the temple. But when we look deeper into the description of her, probably the most outstanding quality we should be recalling and drawing inspiration from is her faithfulness. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshipping God with fasting and prayer. Now, some commentators, they believe that it's possible that Anna actually lived at the temple. They apparently did have apartments in the outer court. And it's possible that maybe she was allowed to live in one of these. I don't know if that was the case or not. Um, It does say that she was there day and night. It might have been that she just spent a lot of time there in the temple. It was like she was part of the furniture. If you went to the temple, you would either run into Anna or you would see her there. Either way, it is apparent that she was devoted to spending as much time as possible in the temple. She was near the presence of God and she was serving him through worship, prayer and fasting. And she was probably well known. I very much doubt that Luke was present that day. Um, this is not a first account, first-hand account that we've read here. He would have been presenting this account from his careful research and from the actual eyewitness accounts of what took place. And Anna would have been well known. 
She was always found at the temple. Possibly for 60 odd years she was seen there. And this speaks to us quite a bit. It shows us her passion and her commitment. She was known for her prayer with fasting. And this talks to us about her self-denial and her commitment to seeking the Lord. Then there is the fact that she was a prophet. This demonstrates to us that she desired to see the word of God spoken, to see the word of God being taught and explained to others. Anna was known for her faithfulness, her compassion and her commitment to the worship of God. And she serves as a great example to us. We should all be known for our faithfulness to God and for our desire to serve him. Now, no doubt Anna prayed for many things. However, one of the main things that Anna would have been praying for and looking out for was the Messiah. And that's the same thing that Simeon was eagerly longing for. In some versions it says that he was longing and waiting for the consolation of Israel. Anna's faith and hope and prayers would have been based on her belief that God would fulfil his promises from the Old Testament. She would have known and understood scripture. The Messiah is promised right from the time of the fall of Adam and Eve. And time and time again throughout God's word we find his promise of this salvation. So she was faithfully praying day after day, year after year, trusting God to send his salvation. And then one day it happens. She sees that salvation with her own two eyes. She's in the temple that day, as she always is, and she approaches the exact spot where Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph about their baby. She may even have heard the wonderful things that Simeon was saying. No doubt the Holy Spirit was upon her, and she recognised that this Jesus, that this child was the very Messiah that she had been praying for and longing to see. Anybody else there that day probably just saw a lovely little family, mum, dad and baby. But Anna saw something different. She saw something quite momentous. Just imagine what she would have felt at that moment of realisation. She would have felt incredible excitement and incredible joy. In fact, the text tells us that she began to praise God. That was her immediate response. She had been faithfully worshipping God for all those years, praying in his will for the Messiah, for God's promised salvation, and here it is bundled up right before her. Praise the Lord. Praise you God, you have fulfilled your promise. The Messiah is here. So she praises God and then she testifies to what she has seen. The last point this morning brings us back to the main theme of our passage. She talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. Anna was a faithful witness of Christ. Now there's a number of things that we've extracted uh, from this passage today that can encourage us and they can challenge us in different ways. 
We can serve God no matter who we are. And then the spin-off is to challenge our perception of who God can use. Do we view certain parts of the body as being less capable of serving God? We have the example that Anna gives us and the encouragement to live lives that are faithful to God. And we have the encouragement to earnestly and continuously pray and fast. And there are possibly other things that have spoken to you from this passage this morning. But the main theme of this passage is to provide another confirmation that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. And that is the good news. And that's why Luke included it in his writings. This is one of the earliest accounts of Jesus being recognised as the Messiah from the time he was born. And who are the two witnesses? It's not the high priest, or for that matter, any of the Pharisees or the Sadducees. It is two people that have been faithfully and truthfully living their lives for God. And what are they a witness to? Here is the Christ, and he will save us. We see Anna's prophetic gift coming to bear and she speaks of him to everyone who has been waiting for God's rescue. The verb that is used here signifies a continuous action. So it's not saying that Anna only spoke about Christ just as that moment and then afternoon tea rolled around and that was that. No, she would have been continually praising God and continuously bearing witness to Christ. And it makes sense. She had just seen Jesus with her own two eyes. She couldn't keep that to herself. The obvious question for us is, do we do that? Are we faithful witnesses of Christ? Unlike Anna, we haven't physically seen Jesus for ourselves, but we have been saved by him. And we have constantly been saved by him. Some of us have things that we can testify that he has done for us. Some of us can testify that he has been with us through many years. Some of us can testify that he has delivered us from some sort of addiction. Some of us can testify that he has comforted us through our darkest days. Some of us know his provision at a time and in a way that was least expected. But all of us know that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life and there is no other way to God except through him. Christ is our only salvation. That is our message and our hope. Like Anna, we can be faithful witnesses of Christ. Now we will finish um, this morning with these inspired words of Simeon. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people Israel. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we're just so, so grateful that, Lord, you have fulfilled your promises. Lord, you promised a saviour and, Lord, that saviour has, has come.
Lord, we pray that this morning as we consider your words this morning, may our hearts just really desire to see that you are testified about uh, with our friends, with our families, with people that we meet. Lord, we want to be a witness to the fact that the Christ has come, that we have the salvation. Lord, we thank you for everything that you've done for us. We thank you that you sent your Son to die in our place and to, to rescue us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.